It's time. Okay, great. Um, so hi, everyone. Uh, thanks so much for being here. My name is Eliza Caffrey, and I am a graduate student in Justin Sonnenberg's lab here at Stanford University. And on behalf of my co-organizers, David Zilber and Justin Sonnenberg, I want to welcome you to the Fermentation and Health Speaker Series from the Center of Human Microbiome Studies at Stanford University School of Medicine. And if you joined us last time, David gave a fantastic introduction where he highlighted the importance of understanding how in microbial communities, a resilient community is dependent on both presence and absence of certain microbes, but also the abundance of each. And it is in the microbial ecology that contributes to this increased safety and flavor that we seek in food fermentation. And he also discussed that while our understanding of the benefits of fermented food consumption is still in its infancy, often when consuming a fermented food, which depending on what type of fermented food you're eating, you're eating maybe higher fiber or higher abundance of vitamins and nutrients. And so that could be displacing this consumption of some less nutritious food. And so it just encourages a change in diet. And if you're making ferments at home or shopping locally, you're also uh, engaging more with food in your environment. And so that can also contribute positively. And so this time we wanna focus more on health claims in the clinic. So when it comes to consumption of fermented foods, how do microbial foods affect someone considered healthy by clinical standards compared to those with a health condition? Is it appropriate to recommend fermented foods to a patient? If so, which types of fermented foods? And what should clinicians know about fermented foods to help a patient that's asking them navigate a grocery aisle? Um, and so before introducing our speaker, just a little housekeeping, uh, this will all be recorded and sent to you in the next few days. Feel free to write in any questions that you have, upvote questions that you like, and we're going to try to get to them. And uh, thank you again to everyone that submitted ahead of time. And so with that, I want to introduce our first speaker, Dr. Suzanne Devcota. Uh, Dr. Devcota is an associate professor at Cedars-Sinai Division of Gastroenterology and is the director of the, uh, the Cedar Human Microbiome Research Institute. Uh, her work focuses on the relationship between diet and the gut microbiome with a focus on inflammatory and metabolic disorders. And I highly recommend checking out her lab's work. She uh, has done some really fascinating research and I'm afraid to get into it because I'm gonna go off on a tangent, but it's really cool. Um, and she's also a great science communicator and we're gonna see that now. Um, and so Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Elisa, and thanks, David and Justin, for um, inviting me to speak this super cool um, series that you have, and, and, and congrats for, um, <clears throat> you know, reaching such a broad audience. Um, so, yeah, I'm tasked today with uh, talking about uh, who may have some benefit or um, to, first of all, make the disclaimer, I'm not a physician, I'm a PhD scientist, um, but I am uniquely positioned um, at, in an institution and in a department and program um, that uh, focuses on inflammatory bowel diseases. And we have pretty seamless interface with our surgeons and physicians. Um, and we, we all, the basic researchers and clinicians and the dietitians, we all come together often to tackle some of our most complex patients, to think holistically about how we can um, manage them, uh, you know, beyond the traditional blood workups, you know, how can we incorporate the microbiome, how can we incorporate diet and um, and so that's given me kind of a unique perspective into the patient experience and, um, and anecdotally what works and what doesn't. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what 
has been published out there um, on the how fermented foods potentially can interact with the body um, or benefit and, and also some contraindications with fermented foods um, and things that we may not think about. So when I was thinking about, you know, how, how did I want to structure this presentation, um, I, I realized, you know, I first wanted to talk to the boots on the ground first. And, um, and just to get a current, you know, survey of the list um, four individuals and conduct our dietitians, um, registered dietitians, um, who are clinicians um, and uh, working working with uh, um, patients directly on the dietary side. So let me share my screen. Okay. And I apologize, my internet's a little wonky, so if I freeze, just be patient, I'll be back. Um, <clears throat> okay. So um, I, these are the four individuals I, I um, uh, interviewed, hugely uh, talented and helpful individuals. And they, uh, I, I chose individuals who are in diverse parts of the country to try to get some perspectives that were maybe not totally coastal. Um, so first, um, I reached out to Kelly Isaacson, um, who is our ID dietitian. And uh, Eric Vasilaskis, uh, Dr. V, who is, um, runs our um, IBD nutrition program. Uh, and here at Cedar Center. And I also interviewed Lindsay Alvenberg at UPenn and CHOP. She actually deals with um, pediatric uh, patients primarily. And she's an attending, but she also has led a lot of the dietary and microbiome studies that came out of Penn. Um, and then David Gardner at Cleveland Clinic, um, who is in Celia. And so some of the questions that I, I want to learn more about is what are patients these days coming in with a baseline knowledge about, you know, when, when it comes to diet period or fermented foods, um, what are they recommending these days? Um, have they seen anything that actually works for GI conditions, mostly anecdotal, but I was curious about that. And do they have any concerns about fermented foods and, and maybe based on certain GI conditions? So um, each of these individuals just to or from you know GI IBD program, so they're dealing with primarily their expertise will come from patients who have IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, which is a functional bowel condition, celiac disease, which is um, uh, inability to process gluten, it causes an autoimmune condition. There's a strong genetic component, um, and uh, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And if you look in these figures, now these these cartoons here are of your intestinal epithelium. I'm not go, going to go into these processes, but I want to highlight is that if you look at each of these diseases, diet is a component that is widely accepted um, to be a driver um, or potentially secondary driver of these um, conditions. So in IBS, gluten clearly comes from wheat is a big problem in celiac, and we know different diets can, can, can drive IBD or make it worse. Um, we also know the Involved in almost all of these, um, a little, little bit like and uh, the gut microbes from the diet. So we have to really think about, I mean, the role of dietary therapy and synergistic therapy with diets in these conditions is really, really important. So what are the consensus statements um, that I, I kind of gathered that all of them basically similar comments from all of them. One, 
as you might expect, some patients are more informed than others about the diet, no surprise there. Um, many patients are really familiar with the benefit of dietary fiber, whether it's simply just preventing constipation. Um, and many patients ask about intermittent fasting, which is, which is quite interesting. Um, and, uh, but few actually know about fermented foods and more so few know what exactly is a fermented food. Um, and the broad range, I think there's some 5,000 plus characterized fermented foods. Um, and if you go regionally into parts of the world, that goes up exponentially. I think, you know, in mainstream, we don't even know, you know, what those are. And so getting that information out to patients, I think is important. Um, and there's a lot more concurrent obesity with IBD now, which is really interesting because typically those two were, were never coupled. Um, patients with GI conditions typically are thin um, and uh, in part because of the chronic inflammation and the lack of appetite and all and like that, but a lot, a lot more concurrent. So what does that mean for our diet? So what were some, some of the more unique things and perspectives that I, want, I wanted to highlight? Um, uh, David Gardner from Cleveland Clinic said most of his patients think they need supplements and don't realize they can get a lot of what they need from the diet, which I think is a really important comment, and I agree with that com completely. Um, typically for Crohn's disease, they don't recommend probiotics. Um, uh, it was good to hear that most patients are willing to make some change. Um, anecdotally, intermittent fasting seems to have an effect on, on managing symptoms for IBD and also cutting out processed foods. He most often recommends fermented dairy products, and that is probably where most of the research lies, um, and wishes there were more studies on dietary yeast. Um, so maybe, David, you will, you will help us um, create some new fermented yeast products that can be used clinically. Um, Lindsay, who works mostly on the on pediatric populations, um, say that patients on recurrent antibiotics tend to have the most GI issues. No surprise there, but it, there is actually clinical evidence for that. There's a lot of misinformation. So she deals with a lot of misinformation patients coming in, um, you know, uh, you know, doing things dietarily that there's really not a lot of evidence for. Um, many people believe they shouldn't eat raw vegetables, so they cook and peel everything. Um, also good to hear that 30% of our patients would really like to help their disease. Um, and um, again, more patients are aware of the dietary options that they have. So uh, Kelly and Eric, my, my colleagues here at, at Cedars, um, find the patients who are most interested in dietary, who ask the most about dietary um, options are patients who have functional GI issues like bloating and gas. Um, and these are often the ones that practice on their own um, intermittent fasting. Um, anecdotally, IBD patients seem to find that yogurt helps their symptoms, but in IBS patients, irritable bowel syndrome, fermented foods tend to make their symptoms worse. And there's a fair bit of research on this. Um, uh, the, the low FODMAP diet was created to prevent intestinal fermentation of foods. Um, but here she's also commenting that um, consuming fermented foods can make symptoms worse sometimes. Um, often you'll hear that uh, high fiber foods are not recommended to IBD patients, but she actually believes this can be beneficial, but recommends blenderizing fermented foods and um, fiber-rich foods so that patients can tolerate it better, um, especially patients who have strictures in their, due to Crohn's disease, um, fiber can be problematic. So blender, you know, creating smaller particles can actually be, be beneficial. 
I'd say one of the most interesting things I, I gathered from these conversations was some interactions between fermented foods. Call you may already be aware of this, but I think some of us who are doing the research um, and even producing the food don't always think about this component. So um, there are byproducts of fermented foods um, that can actually interact with um, uh, certain medications. And I'm going to go a little bit into that. Um, but particularly one of the big uh, area uh, products of focus have been tyramine and histamine, um, uh, and, and usually produced through um, high amino acid rich foods and the fermentation of those amino acids. So these are called bioactive or biogenic amines. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that because I do think it's important. So one of the um, a very well-studied biogenic amine um, that is, uh, is produced endogenously in the body um, is really the target of um, MAOI inhibitors. Um, it's an older class of antidepressants that was really widely used uh, early in the, in the 2000s. Um, they found that patients who tend to have depressive symptoms had high urinary excretion of tyramine. So MAOI inhibitors were created to prevent uh, tyramine metabolism. So how does that work? Tyramine in the gut is um, inhibited by monoamine oxidase, which is um, uh, metabolized in both the small intestine and the liver, and um, be released into the and the levels of tyramine can then um, enter the um, adrenogenic uh, uh, neurons into the ventrolateral medulla here, and where they can also be metabolized by MAO, and then they um, can cause a noradrenaline uptake. So MAOI inhibitors were created to prevent this process, um, and it found they had great success with relieving um, uh, depression. But what happened was very small amounts of dietary tyramine were causing um, hypertensive crises in these patients. So what happens here is um, if you are inhibiting tyramine, uh, it is now um, accumulating at high levels in the body. And what it does is it goes into the blood and it accumulates uh, here in these uh, neurons. And uh, uh, the accumulation causes this massive release of noradrenaline and causes hypertensive episodes within 20 minutes and can cause death. And so a lot of MAOIs are not recommended anymore because um, very small amounts of, of tyramine can do this. So in healthy people, uh, we can handle up to 600 milligrams of tyramine in our food and really have no, no effect. People on MAOI inhibitors or who are tyramine sensitive can handle less than 30 milligrams. In that, so if you look at some of tyramine in these foods, so how much do you have to consume of these various fermented foods to achieve 25 milligrams of tyramine, which is in the range of a hypertensive episode? It's, it's a fair bit, but it's not out of the range of what someone might eat over maybe the course of a, a day. Um, and so these are, these are things that um, Kelly was mentioning that you have to ask patients what medications they're on um, as you make dietary recommendations, because these are important considerations. Um, one thing that is interesting, there is a lot of effort in food production to reduce tyramine naturally in fermented foods. I thought this was a really interesting study 
where they wanted to look at increasing the salt concentration in a micro cheese model um, with different fermented bugs to see if they could actually affect tyramine concentrations and then, and then reduce it. So here they looked at, they had this micro cheese model. So it's essentially a, a cheese substrate that they test as their, as their, um, uh, as their model. And they looked at these different organisms involved in the fermentative process. And here they were increasing the salt concentration and found that as the salt concentration was increased in this cheese model, the tyramine that was produced as a byproduct went up pretty significantly almost across the board. If we look at between zero. Um, and so that was that was a facilitative process. So what they sought to do was to add a potentially probiotic strain to the same process to see if they could reduce the tyramine production. So what they um, were studying here was Lactobacillus plantarum, this particular strain, same conditions, increased uh, uh, salt concentration, same micro cheese model with these different organisms. Just the only thing different is they were adding this bug to each of these fermentator processes. And you could see that with the addition of this organism, they could reduce pretty significantly in some cases, the amount of tyrosine, of tyramine that was produced. Um, at the highest levels of uh, salt concentration, it kind of overwhelms the system. So the addition of the uh, organism doesn't really make that much of a difference. But at these more mild concentrations of salt, you could actually, with the addition of this, reduce the tyramine production and still have your cheese product. So there may be methods that exist to reduce these biogenic means sacrificing the flavor or the properties of food, also in environmental production, but also food production. There's a lot of effort in this, in this space. Um, so and the other thing I just want to mention is the other, um, and I'm not going to talk about just in the interest of time, but histamines are also another biogenic amine that are, that are um, produced um, in, by fermented foods. Histamines, um, there's a fairly strong associated association between mucosal histamine and incidence of Crohn's disease. Um, so there's some belief that therefore, if you ingest histamine, you're going to exacerbate mucosal inflammation. There's still a lot of research that needs to be done on this, um, but it is considered a biogenic amine, and there are efforts to also reduce histamine levels in, in foods. So let's look at what do we know about um, uh, human studies that have been done with specific fermented foods. And I'm just going to pick three different fermented foods and kind of give you a survey of what has been done clinically and what the results have been. So if we look at kefir, kefir is a type of fermented milk. It's basically you add what are called kefir grains, which are um, uh, essentially a starter culture that contain organisms added to milk, and it creates a sort of thick, uh, tangy um, uh, fermented milk product. It's pretty popular. You can see it at the store uh, very, very routinely these days. Um, there, there are many studies in humans, but the ends are really small, very small. Sample um, trial on um, oops, uh, with 15 people looking at lactose intolerance. And what they found is with the addition of kefir, they found significantly lower flatulence severity, which is often a byproduct of lactose intolerance, but they did not find a reduction in frequency of flatulence. Um, they, there's also a small, um, uh, quite a few um, RCT studies um, looking at constipation, but the findings are inconsistent. 
Um, there was a kind of interesting double-blind RCT in patients with dyspepsia and H. pylori, confirmed H. pylori infection, who are on triple antibiotic therapy, which is commonly done for eradication of H. pylori. And they, they gave one group 500 mils per day of kefir and the other group 250 mils of regular milk. And they found that the kefir group showed a 78% reduction of, um, of the uh, H. pylori compared to the 50% 50% in the milk group. Now, these patients were on antibiotics, but there seemed to maybe be a synergistic effect with the kefir addition. Um, the patients on the kefir also had less diarrhea and nausea. So that, that was fairly interesting. There's another um, double-blind RCT uh, study on 125 children um, uh, given antibiotics for upper respiratory infancy and maybe consumption of fermented dairy, like kefir actually help uh, reduce a common sum of antibiotic-associated diarrhea. And they looked at heat-treated heat, uh, heat -treated kefir, so you kill all the bugs, or normal, you know, wild-type kefir, and they found no, they found found no difference um, in, in the diarrhea of this individual. So this is really the most that there is um, on, on human studies in kefir. If we look at kombucha, there are a lot of rodent studies on kombucha, um, looking at glycemia, weight loss, um, a lot of metabolic um, outcomes, hypercholesterolemia. Currently, no human RCT studies on the effect of kombucha on GI disease or other functional bowel disorders. It's a really wide open space here. Um, potential benefits that have been claimed for uh, kombucha, I think is interesting, is increased polyphenol and flavonoid content of tea due to fermentation. So essentially, I kind of like this term of encrypted um, uh, bioactive components that are in the food matrix, namely the tea leaves that can be released by fermentation, um, and you get these beneficial byproducts um, and, and scavengers. So what the chemical effect. So lastly, sauerkraut, um, which is a fermented cabbage. Um, oh, and uh, just a ferment, uh, kombucha is a fermented tea that is um, essentially also a starter culture. These all tend to start with a starter culture here. This is called the SCOBY in, um, in uh, kombucha. It's kind of like the slimy biofilm of a pancake that sits in the tea. Um, and you can you know, you can cut off some of your SCOBY and hand it to your friend and they can make their own starter culture of kombucha um, and, and they can be perpetuated on. So you need this, you need this uh, SCOBY starter culture, but it's essentially a fermented tea. Uh, sauerkraut fermented cabbage. Um, also, there, there are some studies, not many. Um, there was a double, uh, randomized double-blind control study uh, in, um, in IBS in 58 patients where they gave a recommended one group to take 75 grams per day of pasteurized sauerkraut, so the bugs are killed, um, or non-pasteurized pasteurized sauerkraut, and looked at GI symptoms and microbiota changes after six weeks. Um, and uh, ultimately, they found that while there was a significant reduction of symptoms in both groups, there was no difference between the groups, pasteurized or unpasteurized, and no major difference from baseline to the end of the study. So this maybe suggests that, in, in, at least for sauerkraut, it, it's maybe not bacteria um, functional component. So, you know, a lot of these clinical studies have been really inconclusive. And, and the question I pose here is, are we looking at this completely the wrong way? 
um, maybe we need to stop looking at this like clinicians and look at this um, question like chemists. Because when you eat um, in our bodies, when you eat, once you have eaten the hamburger and you've swallowed it, it no longer is in that form. Um, the food that you eat is broken down into its chemical constituents, and your body is pretty exquisite at producing the right enzymes in the right part of the GI tract to optimize the breakdown and uptake of these chemicals that are released from our food. It's no different with our microbiome and with microbes, period. You feed microbes a substrate. Um, I have a very broad definition of prebiotics as anything that a microbe can use for fuel, um, but most often it's attributed to fiber-rich foods. Um, and microbes also will take a substrate, a uh, food product generally, and they will ferment it and they will create chemicals, postbiotics. And I also have a broad definition of postbiotics, which I believe is any chemical produced by, um, the, uh, by bacteria in the gut or otherwise that have a, uh, a, a some. So we need to really think of start thinking about how can we study these as chemical reactions. So there's a study as an example that I thought was kind of a nice way to look at this, very simple, but one way to approach this before we jump into humans. So this was a, a paper uh, that came out of the, uh, the cork microbiome group, which is pretty prolific in the study of fermented foods. Um, and they wanted to really characterize kombucha, the metabolism of kombucha and, and the microbiome in, in kombucha. And they looked at the liquid phase and they looked at um, and they looked at the uh, uh, the solid phase of, of kombucha. And what they did is they tested three different unbranded kombuchas, looked at the three different the two different phases, solid and liquid, after about 15 days of fermentation. And then they looked at a non-fermented tea control. So here's the microbiota composition of these three different um, kombuchas, the liquid and the solid phase. And here are the, the types of organism, organisms that were in there. Some of your usual suspects that you would expect. Others I found quite surprising, like C. diff. I don't know what to make of that. I don't know that if that is unique to their particular kombuchas or not, um, but it was there. Then they looked at um, the chemical composition of the, of the kombucha, uh, these chemical structures, um, kombucha, so ignore that for now, but NF is a non-fermented tea, so in the top row is your control, the different um, byproducts that are in, uh, in, in the fermented foods or the, or the control, and you can see that in just tea, you have a lot of um, epicatechins and, and caffeine, um, this has been well described. But once you start to ferment the tea, you get a much broader range of chemicals produced. As I mentioned earlier, you're liberating um, these into um, their constituent components that are also bioactive. And I thought this is really interesting and nice to see the range of um, the different uh, uh, products that are produced. So then what they did is they took um, three different cell lines a colon cancer cell line, a human breast cancer cell line, and a human ovarian cancer cell line. And they expose, again, ignore this, this is just the extraction method. They expose the um, chemical, the liquid phase of the um, uh, non-fermented tea 
or the three different kombuchas to these cell lines and looked at anti-proliferative activity. So could you stop the rate of growth of these cancerous cell lines? And if you look almost across the board, not exactly, and it kind of depends on the cell line, but certainly for the human colon cancer and the breast cancer cell lines, the addition of the fermented products um, had a greater inhibition than the non-fermented give us the chemical level, the potential benefit of how of a fermented food, then you can go into the human, maybe with these derivatives directly and introduce them as a pill or in, in another form um, and really look at the direct effect. And I think we kind of need to actually go more reductionist first, identify the critical components and then go into the humans because I think it's a really, it's a, it's very challenging to go directly into the human with the fermented food without knowing what the bioactive component is of, of that food. And it leads to a lot of confusion about the benefit of, of the fermented food and how we're supposed to recommend it. But these studies, I think, actually give us a potential path forward. And I know people like Justin and Elise are doing work like this, and, 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 and more of this needs to be done. So since this will, this um, portion of the talk will be circulated, um, I wanted to just give a slide of all the references. So at your own time, if you want to read more, um, you can do that. And Elisa, you can unpin me. Yeah, thank you so much. Let me move. There we go. Thanks so much, Suzanne. That was excellent. Um, I wanted to kind of jump right in and talk about, you mentioned probiotics and fermented foods. And if we could kind of spend some time, I know there's an official definition of a probiotic now that's out, but really start to break apart the idea of a prebiotic, probiotic, postbiotic. Um, and think also in terms of how those connect when you get to a grocery store and you see, let's say kefir that has an added uh, probiotic, for example, what does that mean? And what should people be looking out for? Yeah, it is so confusing. I mean, I get why people are really confused about what to choose, you know, at the store and, and, and companies have gotten really creative about how to create these foods in some ways to make them more powerful, uh, because, you know, uh, I would say maybe some of the kombucha, the the raw original formulations of kombuchas were not that palatable. And so companies started adding things to them to make them taste better and sort of like a starter kombucha, for example. So typically once you, a lot of the fermented foods that you see in the store are, will be pasteurized, at least in the U.S. will be pasteurized. And that will kill the live organisms that are in the product that initially created the fermented food. So so I, I actually don't have an issue with that because I don't believe the benefit of a fermented food is the bugs. I believe it's the postbiotics. It's the chemicals in the fermented food that you think we need to study it. So, but a big reason why fermented foods are advocated are because they're advocated as probiotic foods consume them because you can populate your gut with the beneficial microbes that are in the food. And I don't think that's true. Um, so what companies will do is after pasteurization back into the product. Um, maybe again. Um, 
And I think there is really little known about what benefit that does to 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 the gut. Um, so I I really I I am an advocate of um, fermented foods before the chemical composition. Not necessarily because I believe that what you ingest will make it through, you know, your digestive system and colonize the gut. There is some evidence that they can over time. Certainly, um, there's been some really cool studies in Japan looking at consumption of seafood, and you can actually acquire the bugs from seafood that now digest some of the or carry out some of the metabolic processes that you typically see in in ocean organisms. So you can over chronic, you know, consumption. You know, um, you're really diligent, like, you know, with, with any pills you start competed and will not survive. So it's a lifelong commitment, I believe, if you really want to consume it as a probiotic for the bugs. But again, I really think, you know, consume fermented foods before the chemical composition. And as I so showed in some of those slides, it depends on the probiotic or it depends on the fermented food, what the chemical composition is. And we don't really know. And maybe Lisa, in your study, as it comes out, you'll be able to tell us what the chemical composition of all these fermented foods are, because I think we need to know. And um, how can we, you know, or creative news that actually promote some of those specific components that we know. Um, and uh, so I think there'll be a whole new class of fermented foods that eventually come out for, for health benefits. And if I could just add to that, first of all, Suzanne, thanks for that um, tremendous talk and thanks for being here. It's um, yeah, really uh, great to add this dimension to the talk of kind of state of the art of the, the science right now and thinking about what are the active components of fermented foods. I, you know, just to acknowledge the, the fact that these foods are, you know, when they're produced living foods, and that just creates like a, a tremendous difficulty for um, manufacturers, if you want to produce these at mass scales and distribute them to large populations. And David, maybe you could comment. I mean, you kind of sit between these worlds of creating, you know, very fine fermented foods and then thinking about kind of large scale production. How, how do you think about kind of um, health benefits, quality of the food? And, you know, I've, I've seen many kombuchas out there where they're clearly pasteurized, all their, you know, native microbes are killed and then you know, some spore forming live microbe is added back so that they can distribute it at Costco. Um, still kind of kombucha, but but maybe not quite. And I'm I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on kind of these these two angles of fermented food production and consumption. Yeah. Um well I'll just chime in. And I've just been hanging out with you and Suzanne for so long that <laughs> I've also kind of stopped drinking the probiotic Kool-Aid. Um, which is ironic because I also am partially employed by one of the world's largest probiotic producers. <laughs> so conflict of interest, let's say. Um, but no, I've, I've always been um, a believer that sometimes just even in from a gastronomic point of view, sometimes it is worth it to let microbes die in the service of, of holding on to a food in its best possible form, um, whether that's for flavor. So, um, you know, you don't, allow something to over ferment or you don't allow uh you know the snapshot of something when it's perfect to to then change because it hasn't been pasteurized and it's still a ripe environment um for for other microbes to kind of succeed the ones that um came first um but it is it is the thing about life is that it's alive and and you know um not to get aristotelian 
here, but you know, life implies movement, um, and it implies that things will change. Uh, so, at, when when I'm you know discussing things at industrial scale, you know, it 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 with 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 companies that make foods or, or things like that. Um, while some people might wish that they could kind of have their cake and eat it too, um, large large food producers that want to hop on this prebiotic bandwagon because there is consumer interest in it, it's not something that's like mutually inclusive you know you, you can't distribute something have it be shelf stable um but also have like microbes in it um indefinitely um and even the ones that are in the grocery store you know if, if you actually look at the, the the charts of viability you know after a couple of weeks which you know if you've ever seen a grocery store it's not that much turnover, you know, in, in some of these refrigerated aisles. Um, so you're, you're not getting the benefits of, of something that was made fresh. And like Suzanne said, and I'll just kind of wrap this up here. If, if you're someone who's like making kefir at home every day and it's part of your regimented diet, you will see that effect. The microbes have reached their peak of growth. You consume them. There is that kind of blurring of the boundaries, but it becomes a very different thing when, when you want to talk about, you know, food distribution, um, at large scale uh, across states or even continents. Yeah, cool. And so when it comes to um, making recommendations to someone that might have some clinical condition, um, is it about identifying a fermented food that works for them? Is it about designing a fermented food that is beneficial to their condition specifically? Or even just about avoiding fermentation altogether and say, well, you can also get these polyphenols or flavonoids from just consuming a lot more vegetables. And so do that instead. What do you, what do y'all think? Yeah, I, I, great questions. Um, you know, I'm an advocate of personalized nutrition always and forever. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of, you have to spend a lot of time with the individual and um, do an intake, you know, and learn about, you know, what, what, what their history is with food and diet and what their sensitivities are. Um, there's a lot of sensitivities, you know, and many people don't know that they have them. Who knows that they have a histamine sensitivity, you know, until they eat the food and they can't figure out why they have headaches all the time. And they think it's something else. And to really distill it down into that thing is really difficult and challenging. So it takes, you know, good, initial physician, good dietitian to really sit and be able to parse those things out and know the literature and know what's out there and know what to look for. Um, I think that there, a lot of it is trial and error. Um, people will do what they do at home and try it out and say this, I feel amazing on this food. And if that person comes to a physician or dietitian and feel amazing doing X, Y, or Z, um, because some paper somewhere said that that could potentially be harmful. Um, so I think that it's really, for now, the best we can do is trial and error. Um, and, and individuals have to be willing to, to do that. But what I caution against is if something works for one person, and this is maybe directed maybe more towards a patient, doesn't mean it's because it works for you, it's going to work for everybody. And so touting that as the cure-all can be problematic. And you see that a lot on social media. It works for me, therefore it should work for everybody. And that's not true. We're all individuals and our microbiome is individual and body chemistry is individual. So um, 
but I do think it's okay to do a point where we can take a blood measure and say this component of a fermented food would be the most beneficial for your condition. Um, that would be great to get it to that point or to be able to tailor a fermented food and create one that's personalized for the patient would be really great. Um, and maybe to them. So these are all, you know, that's kind of the level that we would need to make these recommendations. I think broadly, you know, apply. Yeah, I mean, I think your your example of the biogenic amines is a really great one, just in terms of thinking about um, how uh, you obviously can't just say everybody should have everything at at any point and it'll make them healthier. You know that all fermented foods are um, are equally good and and equally appropriate in all situations. Um, you know, I I think that the there's a big tension between the complexity of these foods. Um, how they change over time and the paradigm for how, you know, Western medicine is practiced. And, and uh, you know, I, I agree with the, the need to move to reductionist kind of understanding of, you know, how much of the microbes versus the, the metabolites doing out of those metabolites, which ones are, um, you know, hitting re which receptors are affecting which microbes, like really getting to a mechanistic understanding. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you also don't want to rob from this kind of the emergent properties of these, you know, magical foods that both taste amazing, but also probably have amazing properties that, um, you know, you start to lose when you start to break them down. And, um, so anyway, I think it'll be a really interesting time over the coming, you know, decade is we, we grapple with, you know, can we create standards for studying complex matrices, complex mixtures of molecules and, and um, understanding them using some of the omics technologies and things like that, where, yeah, we can understand individual molecules, but we can also understand what, you know, filtered kombucha does if we know that this handful of molecules is there at a certain concentration or something like that. So I think that, you know, the, there's a very kind of simplistic conceptualization of where we're headed in the field, but I'm, I'm excited for, you know, new, new ideas to emerge for how we can study the complex mixtures. Cause I really think that is the, the beauty of fermented foods. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, and the reality is, I mean, some of our most powerful medications were the byproduct of natural processes um, that occurred, you know, in nature and by, and by organisms. Um, so who knows what yet we can discover. I mean, from the fermentative processes, I mean, we tip, there's like so you look at like lactic acid fermentation, there's some well-characterized fermentative processes. But then I talked to David and he's doing some crazy new fermentation, right? Taking this two components that, you know, I didn't know you can ferment or that bugs could ferment that particular thing and creating a whole new flavor profile. And I think new flavors are an indication of potentially new fermentative processes. And, you know, we learn in terms of their their benefit beyond just tasting um and and behind fermented foods and societies and parts of the world um that we can learn from um that suggests there are health benefits but as we get more innovative with fermented foods it's almost like a whole new opportunity for drug discovery um 
I want to quickly pivot to uh, some questions from the audience. Um, so one of the first ones is, uh, has any work been done in microscopic colitis? And how would you imagine it be different or the same? Uh, any work done in patients who might have both Crohn's and microscopic colitis? I don't know if you know, Suzanne. I haven't seen anything. I mean, I, pre I presume the questions about fermented foods and microscopic mm -hmm. colitis uh, and Crohn's. Um, I have not seen any. I've tried to do a pretty broad survey uh, across GI diseases on, on fermented foods. I didn't come across any that looked at looked at microscopic colitis. I'm sorry, um, but uh, it, again, it would be really interesting. I think that's a that is one. Uh, indication where I think the chemical interactions could be potentially interesting to, to know more about. And um, barrier. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on whether fermented foods are necessary for a healthy gut or not, uh, not necessarily in the absence of a GI disorder, if one's diet is already replete with dietary fiber? In that vein, how close are we to make scientific or specific dietary recommendations for the general public on the health benefits of fermented foods? Yeah, I mean, I don't think fermented foods are required for a healthy gut. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of things that can be corrected in people's diet. We, I mean, there's a lot more to fix. I mean, we're getting down to fermented foods are sort of, you know, the, the nuanced, um, you know, working at that 10%, that 5% of benefit. If you're already getting out processed foods from your diet, you know, the recommendations I would make first are reduce processed foods, food additives, um, you know, balance your diet in terms of fat content and sugar content. And those are, we're dealing at that level right now. First is fix that part of your diet. Rarely are you seeing someone who's eating a Big Mac diet and is also drinking kombucha on the side. It's usually, you know, it's usually people eating fermented foods tend to be more health conscious already um, and have an awareness about that. So I think that um, fix the big problems first. And then once you get there, then I think fermented foods can enhance, right? The, the benefit, hopefully, potentially, we don't have all the studies, but that's where I think we're, we're working at the range of, of health optimization. And then as we talk about patients, um, you know, it's a little bit more of an uphill battle because you're fighting against inflammation. You're fighting against all of these processes that um, know what, you know, the, um, Yeah, food is to really fight against those pro those processes. Maybe you need to treat it with medication first, and then once you're stable, you can add fermented food. Um, but in a healthy population, I think if you're eating, you know, we we we've been talking a lot about fermented foods outside the body, but fermentation happens in the body as well, and that's a process we need to support. Totally different process um, that occurs in the gut, but results in beneficial byproducts for gut health. And we know that fiber is one of the critical um, matrices for supporting gut health, somewhat, not, you know, somewhat equivocal in certain, you know, conditions. And I think just in your study kind of highlighted that, um, that fiber didn't increase diversity in the way that we expected in, in a certain population. So it's not, again, fiber doesn't always have, have a meaningful impact, but we do know, and it's widely accepted that there's no real downside to consuming fiber in a healthy population, and we probably need to consume more of it. So um, I would say that if you're eating a normal, healthy, diverse diet, good fiber option and lifestyle, then a fermented food could 
kind of work and help may not be the make or break factor to your health. Just, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think the, uh, you know, one alternative hypothesis that we've been kicking around that maybe is low probability, but I think worth, worth mentioning and thinking about is, um, you know, just, just thinking about the sanitation of our food supply and, um, and, you know, water supply and just the lack of uh, microbial metabolites and patterns, um, you know, associated with microbes that are coming into our digestive tract that, you know, that's plummeted over a fairly short period of time of industrialization. And when you think to like the, um, you know, beautiful study Van Gaye et al. out of Dan Knight's lab in the University of Minnesota, where they looked at the immigrants coming to the United States, how rapidly they lost diversity in their gut microbiome, um, how, um, you know, the indication was there wasn't a, a huge change in diet that these people actually didn't acculturate dietarily so rapidly, but yet um, certainly we're drinking water from the United States and, and dealing with the food supply that actually has um, much less uh, microbial uh, content. You do wonder if, if fermented foods might provide a, you know, a, might supplement back a level of safe microbial load that we've come to, our bodies come to expect biologically that um, now we're completely missing and that it, it may actually you know, one, one possibility, again, just a hypothesis is that fermented foods we may see have really kind of broad population level benefits from the standpoint of just reintroducing microbial exposure that we've, we've lost during industrialization. So I think that'll be an interesting thing to, to figure out over the, the coming years. I, I love that theory. I, and I think that there's probably something to that, um, uh, I, th I think a lot about sort of line of origin of our food. Where does our food come from, right? And as we think about, I mean, go all the way down to soil, right? Our topsoil, which we're losing at a, at a pretty alarming rate and, and depletion of microbes from the soil, right? If we have a depleted soil microbiome, we have depleted roots, we have depleted nutrients in our plants and it becomes a vicious cycle. And we eat those foods and we don't nourish our bodies in the, in the right way. We don't get the right bugs. And so to your point, Absolutely. I mean, that if we can't fix agriculturally how food is produced in some major way, then we have to figure out an alternative. Um, and is that alternative as reproduction through, and is in a safe way, the food matrix, you know, could be, you know, creative ways more, you know, is it the foods that are being fermented maybe are more native? Right, and they kind of represent the fermentative processes of our ancestors, and maybe that's how we slowly recolonize um, our guts. I think it's a it's a great, um, and you may be you may be right that may be the way to do it. Um, is there concern about allergens from precision fermentation now that we're seeing an increase in um, more of an industrial precision fermentation? Um, use and yeah, and um, I guess I would see a lot of that coming from uh, like when there's fermentation of biomass or production of alternative protein for meat. I don't know if David also you have thoughts on that. I just did a talk about this um, for KojiCon and I was speaking to um, some of the people, uh, you know, directly involved with Pfizer and GenCore, 
um, during the heyday of, of kind of um, this technology's development in like the late 90s, early 2000s, as far as I understand. Um, precision fermentation, if, you, if you're going for single molecules, let's say, and I, I would say that the bulk of precision fermentation up until now has been for just that, whether it's citric acid from E. coli, um, whether it's insulin um, to replace pig pancreas um, or, or even uh, chymosin to make cheese without having to slaughter you know, every calf to come out of a, a, a mother cow. Um, they have gotten so good at both the genetic modification and the purification that the individual molecules are pure and indistinguishable from their organic source. That's, that's what I was told from a scientist who worked on this technology mm -hmm. is that when it's in the bile and you have a pure enzyme or a pure protein, um, there's, there's nothing else. Um, and I, I don't know, I'm, I'm not a chemist working at that level, investigating that. I think that, you know, it's, it's a claim that requires, um, some evidence that I haven't seen. Um, but this has also been going on. I mean, these, these products, the products of, of precision fermentation have been in our food supply at a pretty massive scale for the past almost 30 years now. Um, maybe as it gets more commercialized and there's people who don't have the technology of some of the largest corporations to have been doing this, um, maybe they're more loosey-goosey with it. And then maybe you might see, you know, things like yeast or, or bacteria producing histamines as, as Suzanne talked about that aren't filtered out afterwards. I don't know. Um, but that's, that's as much as I can speak to it. Great. Okay. And then one last question. So when thinking of treatment of diarrhea with espoulardi, for example, uh, would there be a postbiotic to study or do you think it's an organism itself in the gut that's making the impact? It's a good question. Um, I think a lot of data, there's anecdotal data, there's some small studies on, I think no one has studied that, right? The question for why. Um, I think their patients, for example, who maybe were on antibiotic, they have a decolonized gut, let's say, and they are taking a probiotic. I mean, there's a lot very controversial in terms of whether that should be done or not. Um, but in if you if you envision it, you could say, okay, well, your gut is kind of wiped out, and you're introducing the organism, so it's really the direct interaction of the bug in a supportive role with the gut. Um, I don't know what the, you know, what the permanent respiratory is. Um, off the top of my head, so you would be, you know, consuming essentially, or if you're, if you're talking about taking it as a probiotic pill or in the food products, it's also in food products. Um, so it could be both. Um, good question. I don't really have an answer to it, um, but it just, you know, warrants why we need, you know, more research on this because there's anecdotal data for people feeling better with these. So, so we should find out more. Um, and I think to close out, it'd be great, Susan, if you told us a little bit about what your lab is working on now in regards to fermented foods. Oh, okay. Um, so we um, actually, I mean, in collaborating with you guys and, and Sean and, um, 
uh, you know, we have been really inspired by some of the work you've been doing. So half my lab does diet studies, half my lab does disease, Crohn's and IBD research in, in patients and specifically looking at uh, fibrosis and stricturing complications in Crohn's disease and the role of the microbiome um, and extraintestinal manifestations in disease. Um, but on the dietary side, um, a big interest we have is how we can leverage the gut microbiome to produce um, chemicals, um, nutrients, um, when our diet is lacking in those. Uh, so if you think in certain parts of the world where um, certain dietary components are not available or for religious purposes are avoided, you want to avoid creating dietary deficiencies in of nutrients and amino acids and fatty acids um, that you can actually you can actually take up into your into your body, but we know very little about how that works. Um, so that's in bars. Can we coax our milk in the diet to produce on the fermented food side? We are we're really interested in um, the interaction of in sort of metabolic diseases, especially at the level of the liver um, with fermented foods. Um, so we're doing some mouse studies, um, again, inspired by you guys. You guys are doing really great work in this, in this space. Um, and we're trying to see, um, you know, in what combinations I said earlier, usually people who are on, you know, bad diets are not consuming a fermented food on top of that, but we do want to ask that question in what combinations, you know, can you take, and is there differences in different fermented foods as a preventative, as a therapeutic, when, when is the, the, critical window for being beneficial and when is it too late? Um, so we do all these studies and most of our studies in mice because uh, mice you can control, humans are extraordinarily challenging uh, to, to study as Justin, you, you probably well know. Um, and so um, so we actually are actively doing fermentation, uh, fermented food studies to try to understand a little bit better how the foods are interacting with the mammalian highly variable really variable. We get a lot of really different results um, from mouse to mouse. And I think that's probably true in humans too. So it's probably representative of the real life situation. Um, so uh, that's, I guess, in a nutshell, sort of a long answer to what we're doing in the lab, but um, we do, we are interested in diet studies and we're also interested in, in the clinical questions of disease pathogenesis. Great. Thanks so much. Um, yeah, and thanks everyone for attending. Thanks, Suzanne, David, and Justin. This was a really fantastic conversation. Um, our next speaker is gonna be Dr. Joshua Evans, who is currently a senior researcher and associate professor at the Novo Nordisk Foundation's uh, Center for Biosustainability at DTU. He worked at the Nordic Food Lab and then, uh, which set the foundation for the fermentation lab at Noma, and then received his DPhil in geography and environment from the University of Oxford, studying the relationship between fermentation practices and the new Nordic cuisine. And he'll be presenting in two weeks on March 28th. So stay tuned for updates. Uh, I'll be sending out the recording from this um, and have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much, everyone. Thanks, Suzanne. See you Thanks. all next time. Thank Bye. Thanks. Bye.